is brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. A big hello from the Fine Music Radio Studios in Cape Town. From me, Paige Nick. You're tuned into Book Choice, sponsored by Exclusive Books, the show that has a million and one books to share with some great music in between. To welcome in the silly season, we have a silly amount of books to tell you about today. So much so that I'm not even going to have enough time to tell you what we'll be reviewing over the next hour. We're going to have to leap right in and get started. So, you'll have to trust me when I tell you that we have a ton of great reviews and interviews coming up over the next hour, with suggestions of a little perfect something to read for everyone. If you've got someone you need to buy a gift for and you have no idea what to get them, we've got something for you. If you're a fiction fundy, we've got something for you. If you like a little non-fiction in your life, we've got something for you. And of course, if you like great fine music, we've got something for you. So stay tuned, we absolutely, most definitely have got something for you. Starting with Beverly Rose Miller, who has got quite a few somethings for you actually. As we head into our summer holidays, Beverly has two best-selling authors she wants to talk about who have great summer reads out that are sure to hit the spot. Hi Beverly, welcome to the show. What needs to be on everyone's must-read summer holiday pile this year? Murder Mysteries are wonderful holiday reads. It's rather odd if you think about it. They're about killing people, while we feel so safe when reading them. My recommendations today are about the all-time queen of murder mysteries, Agatha Christie, and a newish writer on the block, Richard Osman, whose Thursday Murder Club series are notching up record sales. When I think about Agatha Christie, I picture a slightly frumpy old lady in pearls. Yet she was considered a tall, slender beauty in her day, born to a wealthy English family in 1890. She was full of fun and energy, and above all, hard-working talent. She has become the world's best-selling author of all time, with 66 novels and famous movies and plays based on her work. She was, in fact, an extraordinary pioneer in the world of women writing, a role she liked to downplay, but one for which she would eventually be created, Dame of the British Empire. Her first husband, Archie Christie, was rather gorgeous. He was also feckless. They had one daughter, Rosalind, and Agatha did not take to mothering, though her later relationship with her grandson was deeply affectionate. Soon after the birth, she and her husband took off without their daughter for a ten-month cruise connected to his work, during which time she surfed at Musenberg, a sport she had loved, and secretly surveyed the passengers on board. She loved using material she overheard for her next novels. One of her favourite anecdotes was overhearing passengers talking about her. I hear she drinks like a fish, said one, not realising that the author was sitting close by. When the marriage crashed, she famously disappeared for ten days. It made international headlines. Much nonsense has been written about this gap in her life. The skillful author Lucy Worsley has briskly set out what really happened and why. Her later marriage to the archaeologist Max Mallowan 
14 years younger than her, was successful, loving, and passionate. She enjoyed and financed many of his expeditions while picking up much material for her incredibly popular novels. After her death, a love letter from him was found folded into her purse. She had carried it for 39 years. Lucy Worsley's biography is delightful, the best I've read of the extraordinary Agatha Christie, whose work is still giving a huge number of people a huge amount of pleasure. TV personality Richard Osman's murder series has become a global phenomenon. Four old age pensioners living in an English country retirement village. What could possibly go wrong? The first novel, titled The Thursday Murder Club, features two men and two women who can't stand bridge or knitting and who meet together each week to figure out local unsolved murders. But there's plenty beneath the surface. Elizabeth has a mysterious and dangerous past in the intelligence services and is very well connected. Joyce is romantic at heart but stronger than she seems. Red Ron is a big softy and Ibrahim is vulnerable. There's also Bogdan, a handsome hunk of a handyman and chess player for whom no job is too questionable, don't ask, and two very appealing local police officers. Besides the complex and murky plots, the main interest lies in the different characters and the often slyly funny writing by clever Richard Osman. I didn't expect to love these books, but I did, mainly because of the sly wit. They have been described as comfy, but don't drop your guard. There's a dark edge here too. Enjoy your holiday reading. The summer smiles, the summer knows, and unashamed she sheds her clothes. The summer smooths the restless sky, and lovingly she warms the sand on which you lie. The summer knows The summer's wise She sees the doubts Within your eyes And so she takes Her summertime Tells the moon to wait And the sun to linger Twist the world round her summer finger Let's you see the wonder of it all And if you've learned your lesson well There's little more for her to tell one last caress It's time to dress For fall 
tracks in this month's Book Choice Show have been carefully and cleverly selected by the talented Rick Everett and compiled by the genius Dave Wood. And they've all got those summertime vibes to kick us into high holiday gear, like that last track, which was The Summer Knows by Johnny Mathis. Next up, we turn to Shirley Gurler, who has something that might just interest the royalists and memoir fascinators out there. There's a new memoir out about the princess of Monaco, our own Charlene. Not to be confused with Onsa Charlie Theron, who has found herself in Divara Mavata these last couple of weeks. What did you make of the Charlene memoir, Shirley? Royalty must read or must avoid? The very word unauthorized is titillating, and one immediately expects something salacious, gossip spilling, gushing and spewing out from so-called friends and former friends. Think the Duchess of Sussex, even Princess Diana. So I began to read Charlene in Search of a Princess by respected journalist Eileen Princeloo, a self-confessed royal groupie, with some trepidation, especially after the first person introduction. Wrong. It's so far from salacious or malicious or speculative. It soon becomes clear when Prince Lou quotes rugby giant Francois Pinard. Our relationship with the family is intimate and we would prefer to keep it that way. I'm sure you will understand. This speaks volumes about the loyalty this princess commands and she is really doing something very right in spite of the bad press at almost every step of her married life. The press coverage has been so bad, even shocking in fact, that Prince Lou calls the press and its people the modern Grimaldi curse, a throwback to the 13th century when a young woman abducted by the I cursed all Grimaldis with unhappy marriages. To her credit, Prince Lou does treat many of the media comments with the disdain they deserve. The author has delved deep into online and printed sources which are documented at the end of the book, she has taken thousands of published words and written her story of the statuesque beauty who gave up her swimming career to become a princess. That said, instead of finding out the truth about a marriage, happy or not, whether she was a runaway bride and cried at her wedding out of desperation or emotion, we find we ask the question, do we really care? Has she had plastic surgery? Or has she been paid to stay with the prince until an heir was born? What about the illness that kept her in South Africa away from her family for so long? How does she feel about the children Albert had before they were married? What we do know is that Her Serene Highness, the Zimbabwean-born Benoni-raised Olympian role model, has, by staying quiet during all the media storms, risen above the riffraff. Charlene was an ordinary girl in an ordinary family who rose to almost extraordinary heights as a swimmer. That her beauty and her body made her the poster girl for swimming costumes is not important. That she started a charitable foundation is, and that her children have granted her is equally so. There's a fair amount of padding and some repetition, and not enough photographs to my mind. I confess to having Googled her to see more photographs, for I knew very little about her except the fact that she's also compared to that other Monegasque beauty, Grace Kelly, who married into royalty and also had to transform her life. Perhaps the quote by Stephanie, the princess who didn't conform, says it all. If people lived the lives of a princess for even one week, they would dream of it a lot less. Charlene lives in a fishbowl, even a tiny one like Monaco, in which only 39,000 mainly super-rich live, only a few of them citizens of the principality. Let her preserve what she can of her dignity. I'm afraid the search for the real princess must go on. That's if you really are interested. Thank you, Shirley, for another wonderful review.
I've never read a royalty memoir myself before, and I see that Prince Harry has just released his, but I have mixed feelings about that one, to be honest. We welcome Beryl Eichenberger to the show to tell us about a book called Across the Kalapani by Shelvin Motai, published by Penguin Random House. I've been seeing quite a lot of rave reviews about this book, so I'm curious to hear what Beryl thinks of it. Author Shevlin Motai is descended from indentured Indians from Arcot in South India, and I suspect that Across the Kalapani was quite a painful novel to write, yet she brings a sense of joy as she winds this story forward. It was her great-great-grandfather, Sapani Motai, who came out on the Umzinto to Natal in 1909. Travelling from Madras, he was accompanied by his one-year-old son and a twenty-year-old woman who was not his wife. The family stories that abounded about her great-great-grandmother had stayed with her as a child and into adulthood. Questions of identity rose, as they do with so many immigrants, and the reasons why Indians would come to South Africa to the sugar and tea plantations. As a writer, this drove Matai to research extensively, to visit India and dive deep into the backstories of what being an indentured Indian really was. As she remarks, the novel began as a testament to my great-great-grandfather, but very quickly it was clear that the novel had taken on a life of its own. The lost voices of the women of indenture raised their voices and through me they would be heard and finally their stories would come to light. And bring them to light she certainly has, with authentic and memorable characters that tell a story that is harrowing and yet an integral part of South African history and the Indians who are so much part of our demographics. Indenture, or was it slavery? A system of bonded labour was instituted after the abolition of slavery in 1833, when the British colonies needed labourers. Recruits were found within the poverty-stricken streets of India, and the workers came to what they hoped was a better life in Natal, a casteless life that would, after five years, result in freedom and, if they were lucky, a small plot of land. But for the coolies, and I use this advisedly, as this is how Matai refers to them in the book, the promised land was never quite what it was cracked up to be, as it rarely is. It is also the time of Gandhi, and his influence is clearly narrated. Matai paints a fine picture of Sapani as a kind and gentle man, unlike some of his contemporaries. But it is the four women who become bound together in support and friendship that form the rays of the story. The shy young widow, Lachmi, who escaped a vengeful mother-in-law and self-immoliation on her husband's funeral pyre. Brahmin caste and educated Vati, whose abusive husband holds on to his caste at all costs. Chinma, heavily pregnant, married to a simply useless man as part of an unpaid debt. And Giotti, a dazzling young girl whose fate is tied in with her beauty. Kalapani means black water and the crossing is merciless. But life on land has its own challenges, and Matai paints a grim picture of how the indentured labour was treated. I'm not giving away any spoilers. The story will envelop you. Harsh as it is, this is an integral part of our history. The cruelty of colonialism is well documented. It is a beautifully written story, and Matai's prose is smooth and lilting as the story unfolds. 
Well-structured, it evolves as if in the swirls of a sari, the colour, words and contrasts clearly celebrating the Indian heritage. The use of Indian words and phrases adds to the authenticity and a glossary gives meaning. The power of women takes centre stage and, in telling who her great-great-grandmother might have been, shows their strength in facing adversity. Whatever the conditions, they always pull together to make life a little more tenable. A precarious existence for both men and women, the friendships forged surmounted the hardship, prejudice, loss and cruelty and clearly show the strength of the foundation of today's Indian population. We learn a lot from historical fiction and this is a novel that offers a clear picture of this part of South African history. Across the Kalapani by Shelvin Matai is published by Penguin. Strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in spring. My summer wine is really made from all these things. I walk in town on silver spurs that jingle too. A song. I had only sang to just a few She saw my silver spurs and said let's pass some time Summer Wine by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood, adding to our summer vibes here on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books, with me, your host, Paige Nick. Shall we get outside now for some fresh air? I think so. This is our nature book segment, starting with Anthony Frijon, taking a walk on the wild side and telling us about a book called Wilderness Dreaming by Greg Dutoy. I was woken by various strange mooing and bellowing sounds. I lay in bed wondering what on earth was outside. 
I could hear a great amount of shuffling in the grass. I climbed out of bed and rolled back the single large blind, which was all that separated me from the bush outside, and the hut had no windows, at least not the kind that had glass in them. Peering out, I beheld a most beautiful sight. It was full moon, and the moonlight was reflecting and glistening off the wet, muddy backs and horns of hundreds of buffalo, as they grazed all around my little hut. A feeling swept over me, and anyone who loves Africa will recognize it, that feeling of being hopelessly enamored and entirely captivated by the sights, sounds, and smells of the bush. Despite being far from home and very alone, I knew that the bush was where I belonged. Greg de Toy, from his book Wilderness Dreaming, an absolute pleasure and delight to read, totally captivating. He calls the bush his happy place. The bush makes me feel truly alive. His love for nature in all its forms comes out on every page, including the tough times he had to deal with, particularly when he started out as a young man with a lot to learn, especially how to tell the difference between cattle and buffalo spur. He has a delightful self-deprecating sense of humor. Having a dream is one thing, fulfilling that dream is quite another, requiring total dedication, hard work, and an admirable tenacity. And Greg de Toy has shown that he had all those attributes. I should add, he is an excellent writer, making wilderness dreaming an easy read. Add to that, also an outstanding photographer, who has gone on to win international awards, including the BBC Wildlife Photographer of the Year. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, backtracking somewhat, from game lodges in South Africa and Botswana, to a new lodge in the Rift Valley Escarpment in the far south of Kenya, on the border with Tanzania. This was Shampoli in the heart of the Maasai land. Together with his young bride, Claire, they applied and got the job to run this new lodge. Inexperienced staff from surrounding villages had never seen a knife or fork and no idea how to set a table. Training them was a priority. Another snag. Language. Traditional Maasai don't speak Swahili, never mind English. To quote Greg again, Africa is a lot of things, but one thing it is not is boring. It was here that Greg showed his great talent as a photographer. It was here that his photographs of a lioness and how he captured his amazing shots that you realize the metal he is made of. I'm giving nothing away. You have to read Wilderness Dreaming by Greg Detoy, Outstanding writing with pictures. The front cover is a painting of him photographing the lionesses at the waterhole. Yes, he was that close. Wilderness Dreaming by Greg Dutoy. Can't recommend it highly enough. Available at bookstores or direct from the publishers, HPH Publishing. Thank you, Anthony. And now to John Hanks, who takes us on a journey into a fascinating-looking book. It's called The Ship Beneath the Ice, The Discovery of Shackleton's Endurance by Manson Bound. This one sounds really interesting, and I've paged through it, I think it would make a wonderful gift for the history buff or adventuresome person in your life. 
Last week, the hard drive on my laptop crashed and suddenly I was cut off from my regular email stream and all my folders and files. I was initially very frustrated, but my anger and disappointment were put in perspective by the just-published book I was reading when this happened, with the title The Ship Beneath the Ice, The Discovery of Shackleton's Endurance. It made me embarrassed how the loss of my instant communications, which should be restored within a week or so, should be seen as such a major inconvenience when I read about the real hardships experienced by Ernest Shackleton and his crew of 28. On the 5th of December 2014, they left South Georgia in his ship named Endurance at the start of the expedition he was leading to Antarctica, one of the most hostile places on Earth. In those days, there was no form of communication for those left behind. They were on their own. Almost a year later, the endurance was totally trapped and crushed by ice, forcing all on board to abandon ship and watch it as it sank out of sight. How all 28 survived extreme hardship, and I mean extreme, have entered the legends of human endurance. It was only two years after they set sail from South Georgia before contact was made again with the rest of the world. It was a miraculous escape. In that time, they not only survived by no contact whatsoever with all their families and friends, but experienced life-threatening hardships on the ice shelf, where at times the temperature reached minus 40, a real hell on earth. They survived for months on end on a diet of seal meat and penguins, Severely frostbitten toes and one of the men had turned black and was starting to smell and were amputated under the most appalling conditions. And in another man, eyes were frozen shut when he cried in frustration. Against such a background, a hard drive crash I experienced should be put in perspective as no more than a trivial deprivation. Almost 100 years after the endurers sank, an epic plan was launched to find the wreck of the ship, which most thought had been lost forever at the bottom of the sea. Two expeditions were conducted, and as with similar expeditions into harsh environments when participants are often confined together for long in periods, even on these very well-equipped ships with excellent communications, relationships at times soured. And when the first of two attempts could not find the wreck, the disappointment experienced by the funders and participants was intense. A dogged determination to succeed led to the launch two years later of the second expedition, which left Cape Town with even better equipment for searching for wrecks in deep water under the ice and with a communication system which allowed a resident TVQ to submit live progress reports. The exciting account of finding and photographing the endurance on the 5th of March 2022, which was exactly 100 years to the day since Shackleton was buried on South Georgia, is surely a serendipitous event, if ever there was one. This fascinating first account of the two expeditions had been written with passion and emotion by Mensum Bound, who led both initiatives. He has a natural flair for telling a story at a cracking pace and is one of the world's leading maritime archaeologists who has led a host of expeditions to locate most of the most famous shipwrecks. He's ideally qualified to do so. He succeeded in integrating seamlessly his own experiences on the search. 
with extracts from accounts about Shackleton and his crew, and it makes compelling reading. If you're still looking for a Christmas present for a person with a truly adventurous spirit, look no further. The title again, The Ship Beneath the Ice, The Discovery of Shackleton's Endurance. It's written by Mensum Bound. It's just been published in 2022 by Pan Macmillan. And you can get a copy for 360 rand. Thank you, John, and thank you, Shackleton. And thank you for joining us, dear listener. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. This next track is Summer Nights with John Travolta and the late, great Olivia Newton-John. You remember this one, right? From Greece. The musical, not the country. Your dial is in exactly the right place at the right time. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. And we still have tons of book ideas to share with you for the upcoming Reading Silly Season. Back to business, literally. Twanji Kalula is up next with a little bit of non-fiction for you. What have you got for us to read today, Twanji? What do you do when you're a successful business leader and you're ready to run for the American presidency? Commission an authorized biography, of course. Well, at least that's what I thought Whitey Basson was going for when I picked up his biography, Whitey, The Rise and Rule of the Shoprite King by Neil Yeoburr. Later the same week, he was the Financial Mail's cover star and offering to help Ramaphosa fix SA. Given his success in business, there's no doubt he could have a positive impact on our economy. In fact, he already has. Having cut his teeth at the PEP Group, he went on to acquire the ShopRite Group, then just eight stores in Cape Town, and grew it into one of South Africa's biggest business success stories. When he retired in 2016, you could find a ShopRite store in 15 African countries, and the group had 130,000 employees. The book was the brainchild of financial journalist Neil Yobur, who managed to convince Basson over Chat and O'Brien to tell his story. The book pieces together extensive interviews with Basson, his loved ones and colleagues, as well as Yobur's hours of research. He references articles, books, and company reports throughout the book. The result is a detailed account of four decades of Basson's trailblazing career. We have heard many stories of how business tycoons work their way from living on a farm to running an entire industry, 
that's nothing new, and I guess this falls into that category. Though Basan honestly acknowledges the impact that having hardworking, socially connected, and knowledgeable parents played in his success stories. One gets the impression that Basan is not about the frills. He's very focused. He loves his businesses, he loves his family, and he loves people. What makes the story stand out is Basan's desire to serve the less appealing, mostly black lower ends of the retail market, first at Pep and then at ShopRite. Keep in mind that he decided to cater to a market that was undervalued and overlooked during the apartheid era, and there was a gap in the market to do something meaningful. This was undoubtedly the result of growing up on a farm in Porterville in the Western Cape, where he developed a first-hand understanding of what people who live on the border of the breadline truly value. His views that lower prices shouldn't mean bad quality and that all customers deserve to be treated with dignity were relatively groundbreaking at the time. That said, the biography doesn't delve that deeply into what was happening politically in the country. The real interesting aspect of this book is the detail it delves into around the evolution of the ShopRite group. And if you grew up with the group in your life, it is filled with nostalgia. It reads like a retail marketing handbook in a sense, as Basson sheds light on some of his most important decisions and his acquisitions. He also provides insight into what it takes to run a supermarket profitably. Supermarkets have extremely low margins and are difficult to operate in a market that isn't always kind to entrepreneurs. If you have ever thought about what it takes to provide 60% of the chicken consumed in South Africa each day at an affordable price, or produce enough Burevos for 56 million Burevos rolls each year, you'll find this book fascinating. Apparently, Checkers produces enough Burevos to connect Cape Town to London each year. When it comes to authorized biographies, there's a temptation to focus on the good and sanitize the bad, and I'm not sure whether that was the case with this one. The author focuses heavily on Bassan's work, and in doing so touches on many of his failures. One walks away with the feeling that Basan is a passionate entrepreneur who's not afraid to roll his sleeves up or get his hands dirty. And your bird doesn't gush too much about his subject, though the story is rather flattering. Sure, there are the usual lessons about trusting your gut and working harder and smarter than your competitors, but the familiarity of the story and the candid way in which it is told is rather refreshing. Whitey, The Rise and Rule of the Shoprite King, was published by Tafelberg and retails for 330 rand. I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of a Twanji Kalula review. Thanks, Twanj. And now, please give a warm FMR book choice welcome to Melvin Minnar, who brings us a review of a book called Kevin Atkinson, Art and Life by Marilyn Martin, that I believe he himself is featured in. Books about South African art and artists are increasingly rare. For all the information about cultural operators, painters, sculptors that may linger somewhere digitally, the physical book is where their creative history comes alive, where the visual becomes the compelling story. So we are thankful for the brand new publication, Kevin Atkinson, Art and Life, which takes full advantage of the power of the visual as it documents comprehensively the life and work of one of the country's most colorful artists. Atkinson died 12 years ago. The bold presence of this publication honors a greatly talented spirit. It also celebrates the curatorial sus of the late Marilyn Martin, former director of the Ezeko South African National Gallery. She acted as compendium editor of the different voices in the book, but also researched and wrote most of the factual information. This book assures the Atkinson legacy. It is also a delightful read, not only about Atkinson and his enterprising life, 
but the text mirrors a remarkable era of art, mainly during the 1970s-80s. Martin does not do art speak, and her writing is clear. The narration is compelling and sometimes pretty argumentative. Kevin Atkinson was a popular, highly visible, and engaged professor at the Mercatus School of Art. Six years after he died, Iziko hosted one of its most glorious exhibitions, an overview of the artist's career. The title was Opening Plato's Cave. That title refers to the large building where Atkinson worked and stored his art. He called the space Plato's Cave. The backup philosophy to this name was the key to his creative process. I, for one, was overjoyed in 2013 for the re-encounter with Kevin Atkinson's sweeping art. For many art lovers with longer memory, Opening Plato's Cave rekindled memories of the decades when his art and presence were so much part of the Cape Town art and cultural experience of its thoughtful aesthetic production and process. In a review, I wrote enthusiastically about how his art stopped viewers in their tracks. Yet it is and was a challenge to explore Kevin Atkinson's art outside of his time and place. The mystery and the bold, colourful gestures did not make for easy negotiation by viewers, no matter the sometimes thoroughly theatrical attraction. Perhaps the reason was that since Kevin's death in 2007, the local art world had changed so much that we'd forgotten what artists did or should do. We had become so wound up in the art world in which the sound of money, big money, drowns out the gentle and not so gentle beat of life and thought as explored and explained by artists. Atkinson was an evangelist for art as a way of life. Marilyn Martin's title for this fine publication is spot on. It suggests that we not only reevaluate Atkinson's work, but reset our current negotiation with art. We need art of his generous ilk. Atkinson was an active and prominent character of his era, as a lecturer, an important one at the Michaelis, and it was especially during the 1970s that he carried the flag for the last outrageous notions of modernism in visual art. The artist as shaman, like Joseph Boyce, as pioneering spirit, like Duchamp, as a visual gambler in the international American abstract expressionism, he was sus to the global means of art. The conservative South African art establishment was his main opponent. The confinement of a dark apartheid world didn't keep back the genie of his vibrant and colorful thinking and gestures. He lived his life to the full to the end, believing passionately, romantically, in the unique task of the artist has in society. When I wrote about that exhibition in 2013, I was critical of the fact that the exhibition missed out in providing context to Atkinson's art that sometimes confound contemporary viewers, even though they were bowled over by the encounter. This new publication is that. And full disclosure, I contribute a small side story to the book, but there are so much more to this hefty publication, and art lovers, you should all go and get it. And now, before we head into our final segment of the show with a killer interview, Philip Todras is here to tell us about The Last War Artist, The War Diaries and Sketches of Cecil Michaelis by Anne Hraff. The Last War Artist, The War Diaries and Sketches of Cecil Michaelis is written by Anne Hraff, and as an interesting history, Anne, I think, I think you need to tell us a little bit about who this man is, the fact that he was a war artist, and despite coming from a very 
privileged background, goes into service as a war artist in the Second World War. Yes, Cecil Michaelis has a connection to South Africa in that his father was the Rand Lord, Sir Max Michaelis, who was a great South African philanthropist. And even the Michaelis collection is donated by him. The Michaelis Art School is named after him. That's Cecil's father. So Cecil was born into a family of wealth and privilege. He spent his early childhood in South Africa. And then he went on to study in Oxford and in Paris. His passion really was to be an artist. And so that is why he went on from Oxford to Paris to study with some artists. At the beginning of the Second World War was one of the richest men in Britain. He owned a vast estate called Rycott outside of Oxford. And after the French were defeated, he did a great deal to help the French who arrived on the shores of Britain, the free French forces. He even bought an aeroplane for de Gaulle. So, I mean, a lot of his early work around in the First World War was as a philanthropist. He set up a hospital. He did many things. He owned property in both Britain and in France. At his home in La Hamas, he also set up a hospital for children. He wanted to join the war effort. He was recruited, and he wanted to join it just as any ordinary soldier might. So he worked his way up. But during his training, he was noticed. And I think one of the qualities he was really noticed for was that he got into trouble easily, if you like me, if I could put it that way, in that he wasn't a man just to take instructions if he thought they were silly instructions. So he showed great independence of spirit and leadership. We need to get into this background of this man, this man who seems so superficial, a sense of adventure, the artist, became a member of SOE. What does that mean and yes, yes, how about, did you discover this? I'm about this? to, to uh, get on to that, yes, yes. As an ordinary officer, he was the intelligence officer for his unit. But then he received instructions to appear before a committee. He was told no more. And he was asked one question. Would he rather be Chancellor of the Exchequer or Lawrence of Arabia? Cecil decided that Lawrence of Arabia was the right answer, having an adventurous spirit himself. And so he joined the SOE. He was the man they were looking for. Tell us what SOE stands for and what it means in terms of what he became. SOE is the Special Operations Executive. It was formed by Churchill during the war. And Churchill said after the war that the SOE did as much to win the war behind the scenes as what the public knew in front of the scenes. So the SOE did anything They were recruited both amongst, if you like, criminals and corporals, anybody who could be useful. Cecil was very useful to to them. He acted as an instructor for SOE agents. He spent a number of years in Tangier doing all sorts of things, some of which have not yet come to light. So, in fact, he was a secret agent. He was a secret agent. Yes, he was a secret agent. One of the interesting things is that as an SOE agent, he was actually written out of the records of the British, in the British archives of the SOE. And that was because the MI6 also recruited 
Cecil. Go so no he was further. their secret agent too. Let's keep that as a secret and to find out more about this very seriously absorbing book, you need to get The Last War Artist, The War Diaries and Sketches of Cecil Michaelis. It's written by Anne Craft and what's also very interesting is here's the man who helped establish uh, the Montebello Design Centre on what was their estate once upon a time, the Montebello Estate. So to get the book, you can go to Montebello Design Centre. We've just been speaking to Anne Craft about The Last War Artist. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me All summer long we sang a song and then we strolled that golden sand Two sweethearts And the summer wind Like painted kites Those days and nights They went flying by The world was new Beneath the blue umbrella sky Then softer than a piper man One day it called to you I lost you I lost you to the summer wind Welcome back to Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, sponsored by Exclusive Books. That was Summer Wind by my own very favorite old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra. We wrap up the show with an interview that I've been waiting for. You may remember in a recent show that Vanessa Levenstein and I got together and were absolutely raving about a trilogy of books by Sapiwe Glorian Glovu. The third and final of the series was recently released, and it's called The Quality of Mercy. We loved this series, so much so that it wasn't enough for us to chat about the books and read them, of course. We also wanted to hear from the author herself. So Vanessa was lucky enough to get to chat to Sapiwe Glorian Glovu right here in the Fine Music Radio studios about her genius, her inspiration, her next projects, hopefully. Welcome to the show, Vanessa and Sapiwe. Sapiwe, can I just drop in here to say what a huge, huge fan I am of your work. In four years, to give birth to three books is quite a feat. And we're not talking any books here, but the most magnificent, extraordinary trilogy by Sapiwe, Gloria and Lovell, The Theory of Flight, The History of Man, and the latest, The Quality of Mercy. Joining us today on Book Choice for a telephonic interview is the author herself. Welcome, 
Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Do you have a collective name for your trilogy? The City of Kings, perhaps? Yes, so it's called the City of Kings Trilogy. Perfect. Now, there are references to the Victoria Falls and Beezy River. Yeah. <laughs> I know you've been asked this question before because I've read interviews and watched you, but it feels like it could be anywhere in Africa. In fact, reading it as a South African, there were so many references that were reminiscent of mm. apartheid South Africa. And I know you made a deliberate decision not to use the names Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. Will you share mm. this with our listeners? Mm-hmm. Why? So, yes, the trilogy takes place in something called the City of Kings, but the City of Kings is in an unnamed country. And the reasons for that are many. It will take 10 minutes to just go through all of them. (laughs) So I'll just go ahead and say I think one of the main reasons is attached to what you've already said, which is, you know, someone reading it in South Africa will find a lot in common with what is happening in the stories. And that's what I wanted. I wanted the stories to be able to travel. I wanted people to be able to connect their own experiences of living either on this continent or having gone through a particular kind of history anyway in the world. So I wanted the stories to travel and I wanted people to be able to connect with them. And I think from what I hear back, that has happened, which is good. I also didn't want people to bring too much to bear of their own ideas of what Rhodesia and Zimbabwe were or are. I wanted the, the novels not to be bogged down by all of that. Yeah. And it did achieve that universality, in fact, because the themes you mentioned, yes, they are so particular to Africa, but they're also so universal, so many of the themes mm. you bring up. Talking of travel, let's start with the theory of flight and its sentence centers around Jeannie, who hatches from an egg. She then flies off on a pair of silver wings and her resilience, her spirit is quite remarkable. Which egg in your life did she hatch from? <laughs> what an interesting question. So... I'm not even sure I particularly understand the question, but it's very intriguing. So... I liked it that it was a golden egg, and I'll just answer it this way. I liked that the color of the egg was golden because it showed how precious she was and how she always held on to that idea of preciousness and feeding. And I think the resilience that you talked about before came from that understanding of herself as a precious thing. And also for me, coming from Southern Africa or coming from the continent, always talked about how much mineral wealth we have. And I really wanted to shift the focus from what is lies under the ground to what the people who walk on it and maybe think of ourselves as golden and as words, actually things that enrich our continent. So I wanted to shift the focus there. So it had to be a golden egg because she's precious. And I'm hoping that because she's precious, the rest of us also understand ourselves as precious too. Perfect answer. The history of man, are we looking at a character completely different from Jeannie. Mm. And this book, Mm. in fact, really, I was completely fascinated how you managed to paint such a complex picture of Emil Kutsia. He's both Mm. a recipient and a perpetrator of violence, of trauma. And yet, I read his story and felt empathy. How Mm. did you do that? (laughs) I think, you know, I come from the school of thought that says the reason we interact with the arts is so that one of the things that arts give us is this ability to empathize, to be able to walk a mile or however else you want to put it in another person's shoes. And I really wanted to be able to show, 
you know, this very complicated and complex character, but have people understand him, understand why he's made the choices he's made. They don't have to forgive him, they don't have to like him, but they have to understand. And I think that's something that literature gives us, is this ability to understand people whose experiences may be different from our own, whose reasons for doing things may be different from our own. I read literature so that I can have that possibility and ability bestowed upon me by the words on the page to be able to empathize with characters. I think that's one of the greatest things that literature and the rest of the arts give us. And so, yes, I was very intentional in making him a character that people would empathize with. I hope maybe not necessarily then, you know, excuse his behavior, but then, but also definitely, definitely understand him and his reasons for doing what he has done. I think you do just that. There was no excuse for his behavior, yet you didn't judge him. And as mm. a reader, we came away with our own thoughts and our own feelings, and we cared mm. because we understood Thank you. him. Thank the you. quality of mercy, the most <laughs> endearing spokesmaloy. Is he the epi- Oh, we loved him. We all loved him. Is he the epitome of goodness and mercy? Mm. He must be. You don't get better. You don't get, you don't get better than that. No, I think he is. I think he, you know, his understanding of himself as this person of integrity and never allowing the situations he's in to change his own idea of himself. I think it's something that we should all try to aspire to on our better days. But he is also influencing. People have come up to me and said this. That, you know, he reminds them of an uncle. He definitely is built a lot around my own grandfather. Mm. And I think, you know, there are people who hold the line and make sure that for as long as possible, make sure that whatever for them is right or wrong stays on either side of that line. And it takes a lot of integrity and a lot of bravery, especially as politics and uh, societies and things that people deem important change for you to be holding on to what some people may actually think are outdated ideas or notions is very brave and he is one of those brave men who just says you know this is who i am this is what i believe to be good to be just and this is what i'm going to do and you know i'm glad a lot of people are connecting to him he's very sorry to interrupt he's very containing I would feel safe. One feels safe in his presence, even though it is between um. the covers of a book. <laughs> nice. All three books, they're linked by the land, the stories, the character, and visually by these striking mm. covers. There's so many uh, themes yeah. that run through courage in the face of adversity, corruption, moral mm. choices, bravery, and love. And there's a lot of love at first sight, which I loved. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. What are the overriding themes for you? Is there one theme that sticks out that has been a golden thread that starts with the golden egg mm, and weaves it mm. where its way through? I think for me, the all three novels, I'm really interested in the context in which we are born and the histories we inherit and the futures we imagine. And I think all three novels are very much about that. And for me, as a person who loves history, as a sometimes historian person, as a person who loves archives and as a person who is very aware that Southern African settler history has created a particular present for us that we have to be very delicate with as we try to navigate towards the future. So for me, these things are very important. And I think 
it's important to always be cognizant of the past, to always be aware of the presence of that past in the present, and then also be thinking of ways beyond that past for the future. Please say yes to this question. (laughs) (laughs) Can we look forward to another book, many more books from the City of Kings? Yes. So the, City of Kings, <laughs> so the City of Kings is the setting for all the books that I'm going to write. So this is a trilogy, but the trilogy is actually part of a series that is imagined as maybe six to eight books. And all those books will on some level take place in the City of Kings. That makes me so happy. <laughs> it's Thank you. been such a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving your readers so much joy and hope. I think these books Thank gave you. hope more than anything Thank else. You. And all the best, and we look forward to the rest of your books. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank it's you. been a pleasure. It's always so inspiring to hear from an author whose work you've loved. It just adds a whole additional layer to a reader's enjoyment, I find. So thank you so much to both of you. For those of you who haven't yet had the pleasure of reading one of the books in this trilogy, I just wanted to let you know that you don't need to have read the first or second to read the third. While they're all loosely connected in a similar world and some of the characters cross over, they each work beautifully on their own terms as standalone novels, so you can pick up any of the three at any time. I can't recommend these three books enough. Please, if you're looking for some great, easy-to-read literary fiction, to either read yourself or to gift somebody, you cannot go wrong with any of these three books by Sipiwe, Gloria and Lovu, published by Penguin Random House, South Africa. And that wraps up our November show, and actually our November too. Huge thanks as always to Rick and Dave for the great music, to Mwandi and his FMR team for helping us wrangle cats and pull the show together somehow, to all our readers and reviewers and authors and publishers, And, of course, huge thanks to Exclusive Books who sponsor the show with such passion every two weeks. If you missed any of the titles or reviews in today's show, because I know they can come and go quite quickly, if you heard something that snagged in your mind and you thought, I would like to read that, or that sounded interesting, but you don't remember what it was called or who it was by, you can find the podcast of this show on the Fine Music Radio app or on fmr.co.za, so you can have a quick scan through it and find the book you're looking for. We'll be back in two weeks' time, that's Tuesday the 13th of December, from 12 to 1, with Book Choice, Publisher's Choice, where publishers tune in to tell us what they're busy with. You've been tuned into Book Choice for the last hour, with me, your host, Paige Nick, and until we meet again, I wish you happy reading. Book Choice was brought to you by Exclusive Books, celebrating getting more books to more people. The Exclusive Books recommend selection makes it easy. By curating 25 of the most talked about and trending books hitting the shelves, you can, with one glance, get a snapshot of everything hot in the world of books, locally and internationally. Exclusive books also sell gifts, vouchers, stationery and more. Pop into your nearest exclusive books and feast your eyes. For more information or to purchase online, visit exclusivebooks.co.za. 